0: Thank you, Andrew, for being here with us today. I appreciate you so much. And all, all of our folks who lead us in worship every week, we appreciate you all very, very much. Uh, next week's an exciting week uh, for us here in the church. Fact fact, the back's open right here. This back door's open. You guys, some of you probably came through that way, right? So this lobby, it's not finished yet, but we're having the dedication next week. And uh, it's going to be exciting, a lot of uh, great singing, and a great time really of just our church to dedicate ourselves, to dedicate our church to the Lord. So you'll want to be here next Sunday for that on, on uh, November the 24th. And uh, we'll get this lobby finished up here in just a few weeks. Um, thank you for being here with us this morning, for visiting with us. Thank you so much for taking time to come and spend this Lord's Day with us. We really appreciate uh, you being here with us. And uh, this morning we're finishing up a three-part series on uh, the topic of work. And uh, we've called this series The Gospel at Work. And in this series, we're seeking to develop a a biblical theology of work, or what we call a a biblical view of vocation. And uh, what we want to do in this series, what I hope God has been doing in our lives, and I hope he'll continue to do, is to help us seamlessly connect our uh, Sunday worship to our Monday work. We want to connect what we do with most of our waking hours uh, to the gospel. And in this series, we started two weeks ago, we started out talking about the meaning of work. We called it the meaning or the mandate of work. And we talked about what work is. Uh, Last Sunday morning, uh, we talked about motivations to work. God cares why we do what we do. And uh, we talked about how we work to support ourselves and our family. Uh, We we, we work uh, out of satisfaction. God's given us work to enjoy. Uh, The Bible says that uh, work is given to us by God for enjoyment. It's a gift of God. It's from his hand. Uh, we saw that work is service, uh, that it, one of the ways we love our neighbor as ourself is by doing good work. And then we also saw that one of the reasons we work is for sharing, to have something good to share with God's work and with other people. Now, this morning in part three of this series, I want to talk about the manner of our work. That is, how do we do our work? And we're going to focus on one main text this morning. So if you'll turn in your Bible with me to Ephesians chapter 6, we want to look at verses 5 through 8. I'll go ahead and read those verses here in a moment. We'll read verse 9 as well, just to kind of round out this section. But if you go ahead and take your uh, um, hand there and turn over to Colossians 3, I want to read that passage as well because this is really a, a parallel passage. I mean, Colossians 3, 22 uh, to, uh, to 24. So let me begin by reading here in Ephesians chapter 5, and or chapter 6 and verse 5. Slaves, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling, in the sincerity of your heart as to Christ, not by way of eye service as men-pleasers, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, who, who with good will render service as to the Lord and not to men." Knowing that whatever thing each one good thing each one does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether slave or free. And then again, verse nine, just to round this out, says, And masters uh, do the same things to them and give up threatening, knowing that both their master and yours is in heaven, and there's no partiality with him. And then again, over in Colossians three, verse twenty-two, slaves in all things obey those who are your master on earth, not with external service. As those who merely please men, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. For he who does wrong will receive the consequence of the wrong which he has done, and that without partiality. Well, so reads God's inspired word this morning. We'll pray that the Lord will write his eternal word uh, on our hearts. Um, Howard Hendricks, Dr. Howard Hendricks, was a beloved professor for a lot of years uh, down at Dallas Seminary, and he wrote a book called A Man of Integrity. And in that book, he tells a story about a a flight he was on once from Dallas, an outbound flight from Dallas to the city of Boston. And uh, before the plane took off, everybody was in the plane, and before the plane took off, they announced that there was a a mechanical malfunction in the plane, and everybody had uh, to disembark from the plane. Now, we've all been there before and had that happen, right? It's not a pretty sight. I mean, people don't like that. They become very uh, much complaining and griping and disgruntled. And uh, so there was a very, very long delay. And finally, they get everybody back on the plane again. And after uh, all these disgruntled passengers are back in the plane and uh, kind of, uh, you know, letting their, their, uh, their bad attitudes be known, the, uh, added, the uh, flight attendants, when the plane finally gets up in the air f- uh, enough, that they, they go around and begin to serve the snacks and refreshments. And of course, they're giving everybody all the extras they want, you know, trying to offer a peace offering, whatever they can do to kind of calm people down. And uh, there was one man, though, that was especially rude and obnoxious. It's very demanding with the flight attendants. And Dr. Hendricks said he noticed one specific flight attendant uh, treat this unpleasant man with, with uh, class and dignity and professionalism. Uh, she was unruffled by him. When I mean, he was uh, rude, she was polite. When he was uncaring, she was kind. And so he was so impressed with this that after they got finished handing out the refreshments and all of that and were back there standing in the galley area, he went back there to commend uh, this flight attendant for her work and her attitude. And he told her what a good job she did and how impressed he was and that he was going to write a letter of commendation to American Airlines on her behalf. And in response, she said this, Thank you, sir, but I don't work for American Airlines. Now, he was baffled until she added these words, I work for Jesus Christ. Now, I love that. That, That's classic. There she was at 33,000 feet working for Jesus Christ, beautifying the gospel um, of Jesus Christ. And this story reminds us of a very important point, and and that is that one of the best places to put the gospel to work is at our work. In fact, someone has said it like this, a primary work of the church is the church at work. One of the primary works we do is when we go out and we're unleashed in the community to do the work that God's called us to do. Our our jobs are platforms for us to put the gospel on display, to beautify the gospel. So we're to live out our faith at work. We who are in Christ are to allow Christ to have a pervasive influence and a bearing on why we work but also how we do the work that God's called us to do. I read a story a while back about a a man who needed to get a shoe repaired, and he rushed to the shoe store. He got there exactly at 5 o'clock when the store closed, and he looked at the parking lot, and it was empty, so he figured it was closed, but he went ahead and went and tried the door anyway, and to his surprise, uh, the shoe repairman was still there. He said, I didn't think anyone was here, but he says, uh, he says, I'm glad I got here on time. And the repairman said, "You uh, come, on in, come on in. He said, I'm just getting ready to go home. And the guy said, well, you're getting ready to go home. He says, I just got here and I didn't see any cars out in the parking lot. How are you going to get home? And the shoe repairman pointed over to the corner of his shop and he said, see those stairs over there? He says, I live up there. I just work down here. And I like that because that's the way it should be for every one of us as believers in Jesus Christ. We live up there, if you will, but we work down here. And the fact that we live up there and have a relationship with Christ should transform uh, the way that we work. Our faith in Christ should transform our lives, but it ought to transform our work as well. Our Sunday worship should seamlessly connect uh, to our Monday work. Now, our text this morning begins with the word slaves and I don't want to spend a lot of time talking about slavery in the first century. That's not really the the main focus of of this study. But I will mention that that's the context here of this passage. Uh, There were about 60 million slaves in the Roman Empire. Most scholars will say about a third of the people in the Roman Empire were slaves. In fact, in the the country of Italy and the city of Rome, about 70 to 80% of the people uh, were slaves who lived there. And the slavery back then was different than what we're familiar with, the, the, the scourge of slavery uh, that was in our country um, centuries ago. Um, it was not race-based. I mean, it was rarely lifelong. People usually served for about 10 to 20 years. Uh, they could make money. I mean, it was more like indentured servitude. In fact, often slaves were more educated than their masters. They'd be captured through war sometimes. Um, sometimes people through debt would have to become indentured servants. Now, that doesn't mean it was all pleasant. I'm not trying to glorify it. Certainly being in servitude to another person is never good. And some masters were very cruel and unreasonable. Um, others were, were good and, and, and were kind uh, to those who were under their care. Uh, but let me just say this kind of to, to, to present what the Bible says about it or doesn't say about it. The New Testament never condemns slavery but never condones it either. And what happens in the scriptures is God tells slaves and masters how to live in a a godly relationship with each other. And over time, as Christianity spreads, and the gospel spreads, the Roman Empire was transformed. Here's the way Abe Curavilla, who teaches at Dallas Seminary, um, he's got a, a commentary on Ephesians. He says it like this. Christianity's emphasis has always been on the transformation of individuals who will in turn influence society, and not the transformation of society, which will then transform individuals. So that's the focus in Scripture, is the transformation of us and of our lives to see the transformation, uh, again, uh, of society. So what I want to do this morning is take this passage, originally written to slaves and and those in servitude, but I want to use this as an analogy or by implication to apply this passage to all of us who find ourselves working uh, for someone else. So what I want to do is look at three scriptural specifics about how we are to do our work. Uh, Three aspects, if you will, of a godly work ethic. And the first one here, the first aspect of a godly work ethic is a submissive attitude. Uh, This is the most basic overarching command. Notice, slaves be obedient. That's in the present tense in the Greek to mean this is a constant, daily, continual obedience to those who are over us. I'm in the workplace. And he says, notice, those who are your masters according to the flesh. Obviously, the Lord is our ultimate master, but we have masters that we serve according to the flesh. Now, very simply in this passage, this is telling us, do what your boss tells you to do. Do what they say. Not because they necessarily deserve it, but because they're in that position of authority that God has placed over you. And even in, even in less than ideal circumstances, when you work for someone, you're to obey and to submit to their authority. I mean, let's talk about non-ideal circumstances. Think about these slaves. I mean, it would have been a tremendous challenge to be submissive, especially to a cruel and an unreasonable master. Yet in 1 Peter 2.18, Peter said this, Slaves in reverent fear of God, submit yourselves to your masters not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. So even if you have a, a boss who's harsh or inconsiderate or unkind, it tells us we're to do what they ask us to do. Now, I know a lot of you in your work today, many, many employees today are being asked to do more and more for less and less. A lot of people in their jobs, the, the quotas kind of keep going up and they're asked to do more for either the same pay or sometimes even less money. And that can become very frustrating, and submitting to a difficult boss can be challenging. But you and I have to choose our attitude every day, and this passage calls on us to be good employees, even if we work in a toxic environment. So the default position for biblical employees, for for Christian employees, is submission. That should be uh, the default position or the default setting for us in our work environments. And our submission is not just to be an outward submission, but I believe it's to be inward as well. I mean, you can submit on the outside, but you can be unsubmissive on the inside. There's no place for a Christian employee to have kind of a subtle insubordination or a a cleverly concealed contempt for the person that God has put in authority over them. In fact, in Colossians 3.22 that we read a moment ago, it says, in all things, obey those who are your masters. So obey your employer until they ask you to do something that disobeys God. Obviously, if they ask you to, to do something the Bible says not to do or not to do something the Bible tells you to do, then that's the, obviously the limit of our obedience. In other words, if they ask you to cheat or lie or you know, cook the books or something like that, that's where we draw the line in our obedience. Now, if you have a difficult time respecting your boss or submitting to him or her, one piece of advice I'd give you today certainly is choose your attitude and submit to the person. But if it's that difficult, find another job. Uh, That's one advantage we have, a great advantage, over slaves and servants in the first century. And by the way, we ought to be very, very grateful for that uh, as well. Slaves weren't free to find another job Uh, But you and I are, and we need to thank God for that privilege and opportunity. And God's providence, under God's care, if you can, uh, move to another job. There's no life sentence for us to stay in what we consider to be a dead-end job. But as long as you're at the job you're at, you have to fulfill this command to be submissive to those who are in authority. Now, he goes on here and gives a couple characteristics of this submission. He says, Slaves, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh with fear and trembling. And that carries the idea of of being courteous and respectful or being respectful and humble towards those in authority over us. Now, some take this idea of fear and trembling to be our attitude towards God. If you look at the parallel passage, again, in Colossians, it talks about doing your work in the fear of God. But here, it seems to relate back to our our attitude towards those in authority over us. And, of course, all fear ultimately begins with godly fear, that is, an awesome respect uh, for the person of God himself. But here in this passage, it seems to be respect and humility towards your boss or your employer, kind of a deferential respect for them. You say, well, what if they're not worthy of that respect? The Bible says we're to give it to them anyway. We're to respond in humility towards them as long as we work there. And then he goes on and says, do this in the sincerity of your heart. Now, in the sincerity of your heart literally means putting your heart and your soul into it. Do your work wholeheartedly and completely. In fact, you'll notice the end of verse 6, he says, do it from the heart. So we're to do our work not just trying to get by with the minimum, but we're to be fully engaged and give our heart and our mind to it, to be uh, single-minded and focused on what we do. Now, most of you know this, but there's a lot in the Proverbs about work. Um, I've never looked this up myself, but I, I got this from a person I respect greatly that says there's more Proverbs that talk about wise speech than any other topic. Now, that's interesting. That's interesting. Because what comes out of our mouth is what's inside our heart. So there's more proverbs, according to an expert I read, about wise speech than any other topic. But the second largest number of proverbs deal with work and what we get from work, and that is money. So most proverbs about speech, but number two and and number two and three, you would say, are work and money. And the Proverbs have a lot to say about slothfulness, about being a sluggard or being lazy, about having a poor work ethic. In fact, there are some outlandish excuses given to avoid work in Proverbs. If you don't think God has a sense of humor, listen to this verse here. This is Proverbs 26, 13, 14, and 15. It says this, a sluggard says there's a lion in the road, a fierce lion roaming the streets. In other words, I don't want to go out of the house. There might be a lion out there that will get me. You talk about dumb excuses or wild, outlandish excuses. I can't leave today. There might be a a lion roaming in the streets that will get me. And then it says this, as a door turns on its hinges, so a sluggard turns on his bed. That's a graphic picture. It's like a door on its hinges just turning over, you know, and bed just kind of flopping over back and forth, not getting out of bed to go out and to be productive for the day. But here's the best one. A sluggard buries his hand in his dish, and he's too lazy to bring it to his mouth. Now, that's lazy. I mean, you you put your hand there to get some food, and you're too lazy to even bring the food uh, to your mouth. Again, if you don't think God has a sense of humor, just picture these different uh, scenes in your mind. There's a lot of funny slogans out there about laziness. One I like is someone said, I find work fascinating. I can sit and watch it all day. That's the way some people are. This is a good one. Somebody had these words put on their tombstone. Well, at least I don't have to wake up anymore. (laughs) That's a lazy person. (laughs) That's all all they're thinking about. But Proverbs has a lot to say about laziness, but it also, on the flip side, has a lot to say about being diligent in work. I In Proverbs 10.4, it says, The hand of the diligent makes rich. I mean, one of the ways that God provides for us is through diligent work. Proverbs 12, 24, the hand of the diligent shall rule. Proverbs 13, 4, the soul of the diligent is made fat. Again, we could go on and literally read dozens of verses from Proverbs about work. But working hard and doing our work well and being conscientious. God honors diligent hard work. And by the way, this applies to, if you're employed by someone in the workplace, if you own your own business, it applies to those of you who work in the home. And it also applies to those of you who are students. I'm at the 930 service. We have a lot of students from UCL that kind of sit in this area. And I was mentioning that in the service, and if you're a student, if that's your calling of God during the day for you, this point in your life, to do your best, to work hard in, in your studies and what God has called you to do. We see this throughout the Bible. Uh, Joseph and Daniel and Nehemiah. Uh, these men that were on the cutting edge, if you will, they were sharp and efficient. Uh, these men were on their game every day. and We see that they were promoted by God and, and promoted by man on earth. Ecclesiastes 9.10 says, Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. Take pride in the work that you do. Be on time and, and work hard and be diligent. Don't be lazy and sloppy and do subpar work. Be the best worker in your office or your factory or wherever it is that God has placed you. There's a great quote by Jim Elliott, the great missionary, and this is a wonderful quote just to think about in your life. He says, wherever you are, be all there. That's a great quote, isn't it? Wherever you are, be all there. If you're with your family, be all there. If you're at work, be all there. If you're having leisure, you have a time to get away from work, be all uh, there. Uh, Don't just do the minimum. Ask constantly where you work, what can I do uh, to help? I read a quote uh, just yesterday in some final reading I was doing. It's a simple little statement, but I love this. Every day should be a day of service to the Lord. It's a great way to think about life. When you get up in the morning, this is another day for me to go forth and to serve the Lord. Uh, Dorothy Sayers said it like this years ago, the only Christian work is work well done. That's really the only Christian work there is. The only Christian work is work that's well done. Years ago, there was a, a guy that retired from his job and they had a big retirement dinner for him. And uh, the, the guest, the master of ceremonies got up and said this, as a token of our appreciation, we've created a special gold watch to serve as a reminder for your many years working with us. It needs a lot of winding up. It's always late. And every day at a quarter to five, it stops working. <laughs> this reminder of his job years at the company, right? Or well, to do our job and we're to do our job well. I read a, uh, I actually watched online a uh, speech of Martin Luther King, Jr. I encourage you to watch it if you've never seen it. It's from April 9, no, April 1967 at a Baptist church in, uh, in Chicago. It's called The Street Sweeper. And, of course, you know, uh, M- Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr. was a tremendous orator. And at one point he says this, and I won't be able to say it like he does it, but he says, if it falls your lot to be a street sweeper, sweep streets like Michelangelo, uh, like he painted pictures. Sweep streets like Beethoven composed music. Sweep streets like Shakespeare wrote poetry. Sweep streets so well that all the hosts of heaven and earth will have to pause and say, here lived a great street sweeper who swept his job well. It's a great statement, a great motivation for us to do what we do and do it well. We ought to be known as diligent, wholehearted workers, whatever we do. Again, whether it's in the home, whether it's in the workplace, whether it's at school. And then notice he adds these words here in verse 6, not by way of eye service as men pleasers, not with a view towards just impressing others, now, every one of us can relate to this. I remember when I was younger and my dad would give me something to do or my mom would give me something to do. As long as they're watching you, you worked harder, right? And then whenever they left and weren't watching you, you'd kind of goof off and you'd hear them coming or see them coming around the corner and you'd get back after it again. I mean, we're all like that and to some degree. But what this means, not by way of eye service, is not putting on appearances, not just for show, uh, not people-pleasing. What he's saying here is your work shouldn't be a form of acting. We're just kind of acting when someone's watching you. I'm not just working hard when people are looking. There's a a story I ran across just a couple days ago by Ray Steadman. You all know I I quote him a lot. He was the pastor at uh, Peninsula Bible Church in Palo Alto, California, for many years. I'd never heard this story before. He tells a story about a missionary um, to Africa who was responsible for getting a lot of the nationals in his area to do certain jobs. And he discovered that the, a lot of them were, were lazy and would kind of uh, just perform when he was watching them when he was there. Otherwise, they'd just kind of hang around and not do much. Uh, so when he left, they'd all just you know, kind of stop working. And when he returned, then they'd get busy again. So this missionary happened to have a glass eye. So he took his glass eye out one day and set it on a stump facing them where they were working. Now, I'm sure they were freaked out, first of all, to see a glass eye, but he sets it on this stump, and he found that when he would leave and come back, they were still working because they thought he was watching them uh, through this eye. But one day he leaves, and he goes away, and he comes back, and he sees they're all just laying around again. And he wonders, what in the world? And he looks over there and realizes one of them had snuck up behind that eye and put their hat over it, over the top of it. So they all didn't think the eye was watching them anymore. Now, that's eye service, isn't it? I mean, that's working to have somebody watching you. And he says here, don't work by way of eye service as men pleasers, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God. Uh, from the heart. So the first key to a godly work ethic is a submissive attitude displayed through a deferential respect to our boss and diligence in the work God calls us to do. Now, the second key here to a godly work ethic is an awareness that you work for a sole audience. You work for a single audience. You and I need to know who we work for. We need to know who our real boss is, and whatever you do, you and I work for God. Now, whoever you are this morning, whatever your work is, you don't work for Chesapeake, uh, you don't work for OG&E, you don't work for the federal government, you don't even work for Faith Bible Church. What well, you and I do, we do for the Lord. We work for Him. And by the way, you're not even self-employed. Some of you may say, well, I don't work for anybody. I'm self-employed. Well, you work for someone. We all do. We work for Christ. We ultimately work for Him. All work is done under his lordship. And that's one of the reasons we know that all work is equal. It's all equal under the lordship of Christ. We see this in the text. Look at the end of verse 5. He says, as to Christ. Look at verse 6. As slaves of Christ. Look at verse 7. As to the Lord. He's saying what you do, you do ultimately for him. Over in... uh, Colossians chapter 3 and verse 23, again, the passage we read earlier. He said, whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men. We do what we do for God and for his glory. Uh, Johann Sebastian Bach, the great musician, the great composer, he signed all of his works with two sets of initials. He signed JSB for Johann Sebastian Bach And then he wrote SDG, which stood for Soli Deo Gloria, which means to the glory of God alone. He did his work for the glory of God. Uh, Ray Kroc, the founder of McDonald's, said this once, I speak of faith in McDonald's as if it were a religion. I believe in God, family, and McDonald's, but in the office, the order is reversed. That's the way a lot of people are. I believe in God and family and McDonald's, but when we go to the office, it actually gets reversed. But that goes strongly against the idea of our calling as Christians because I've emphasized this several times now. The primary calling for every one of us is not to some place or to some thing. It's to someone. The ultimate calling in our life is to God. It's to, to walk worthy of him and to live our lives under his lordship. So we're called above all else to serve Christ in and through our work, to do a good job, to be competent, to work hard, even when nobody is looking because we know that the Lord of all things is watching us. In his book, um, Serving God, Ben Patterson tells this story. He says in his book, Lyrics, Oscar Hammerstein tells of the time he saw a picture of the top of the head of the Statue of Liberty taken from a helicopter. He was amazed at the detail and painstaking work that was done on the lady's coiffure. Hammerstein reflected that the sculpture could not have imagined, even in his wildest dreams, that one day there would be a transportation device that could enable people to look down on the top of the head of his creation. Yet he gave as much care to that part of the statue as he did to the face and the arms and the legs. And Hammerstein wrote this, When you're creating a work of art or any other kind of work, finish the job off perfectly. You never know when a helicopter or some other instrument, not at the moment invented, may come along and find you out. And then Ben Patterson closes with these words. He says, The Lord, not our earthly boss, is ultimately the one before whom we do our work. He sees everything we do, big or small, hidden or revealed. Therefore, all we do is to be done as unto him with great care and diligence. Look, working for God and knowing that He's our ultimate boss should change everything. It ought to alter our attitude, whatever it is we're doing, again, in the home, in the workplace, at school, wherever it is. This is a really good quote by uh, Tim Keller from his book Every Good Endeavor. He says, we all work for an audience, whether we're aware of it or not. Some perform to please parents, others to impress peers, others to win over superiors, while many may do what they do strictly to live up to their own standards. But he says, all of these audiences are inadequate. Working for them alone will lead to overwork or underwork, sometimes a mixture of the two based on who is watching. That's a great statement. If you're working for anybody other than God, you're going to sometimes overwork or you're going to underwork, depending upon who's watching. But he says this, but Christians look to an audience of one, our loving Heavenly Father, and that gives us both accountability and joy in our work. And I've often heard preachers refer to that before. You know, when they preach, you know, you you preach to people, but ultimately we preach to an audience of one. God is listening to what we say. Then I love verse seven. He says, "With good will, render service as to the Lord and not the man." So he cuts to the heart of this, and he says, "Do your work with good will." Now you could translate that, that word there, cheerful goodwill or pleasantness or enthusiasm. It's the opposite of ill-will or resentment. I mean, it's the opposite of being a reluctant or grudging in our work. What he's saying here is since we work for the Lord and not just for people, we can have an attitude of goodwill in our work, whatever we do. Now think about this. If you were a slave in that day, you would have had endless reasons to harbor ill will and resentment toward a master. Sure, there were endless reasons. But Paul says to these slaves, with goodwill, with with cheerfulness, with pleasantness, render service as to the Lord and not the man. Now let me ask you a question. Are you a sourpuss at work? (laughs) People look at you and you kind of complain, you gripe, there's resentment, there's ill will that people can see you're unpleasant, you're difficult to get along with, negative and complaining. You and I need to allow the Lord to fill us with goodwill in the work that we do. And even the work we do around the house or we mow a yard or we wash the car, whatever we do, we need to do it with goodwill and with pleasantness to realize whatever we do, we're doing it for the Lord, and it's an opportunity to beautify uh, the gospel. By the way, you and I ought to thank God for a job that we have. A couple weeks ago, I mentioned Cheryl and I were in Brazil for a few days, and I've learned recently on coming back that really a lot of countries have bad economies, and it's bad right now in Brazil, but Brazil and Haiti really are the two countries where they call them not only financially depressed, but the people are the most depressed people. And you could see it there. We we went out a couple days. We were in this small town called Aguas de Lindoa, and we went out and walked around this park area, and you could just see the people there. Everywhere you went, the people were just kind of sitting around. They just looked depressed and and melancholy and sad. There's really no way to, to prosper themselves. A lot of them don't have work. And I thought, you know, it'd, it'd do a lot of people good, maybe who are begrudged and, and resentful and have ill will at their job to, to go and see what's happening there and come back here and be thankful for the job that God has for us to do. And also to be thankful for the health that God gives us uh, to do. We have so much to be thankful for. So we sang in that song a moment ago to be thankful every day uh, for the goodness of God. So look, we serve God with a submissive attitude. Uh, we serve God as with him as our sole audience. And then finally, this final point, and we'll just touch on this because really we've talked about this a lot in the last series we did on heavenly rewards. But he says in verse eight, knowing that whatever good thing you do, you'll receive back from the Lord, whether slave or free. What he's saying here is you need something more than just an earthly paycheck and an earthly reward to keep you going. And he's saying your work matters to God for now, God will reward you now if you're diligent. You're also going to get a reward in the future in heaven. God will have work for us to do in eternity. And what we do now and how we do it will be utilized and further developed in the new heavens and the new earth. This life now is the proving ground for eternity and our accountability and our effectiveness now and our our efficiency and our work is going to be carried over into eternity. Some of us here this morning might admit that we're paid more than we're really worth here on earth. (laughs) Many of you, though, may feel like you're not being paid as much as you're worth uh, here on earth, that you're not being compensated adequately and and, and rewarded for your work. And Paul tells us here that we can have hope that someday God will reward us. And God will pay us far more than we're we're worth. He'll reward us far beyond anything we can imagine. In fact, over in uh, Colossians again, in Colossians chapter 3, And uh, verse 24, I love these words. Knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. So we work now to gain future reward as well. Your work matters to God. It matters eternally uh, to God. And God will someday reward us magnificently uh, for what we've done in this life for him. So look, there's three elements here of a godly work ethic, a submissive attitude um, expressed in in deference to the one who's over us and diligence in our work, Uh, that we work for a soul or a single audience, our work's ultimately for God, and we work with a strong sense of anticipation that God someday is going to reward us for what we do in this life faithfully for him. Now, before we close this morning, I want to point out something in these verses that struck me this week and really ministered to me. Jesus is mentioned in every one of these verses we've gone through. Christ permeates this passage. Notice in uh, verse 5, do it as to Christ. Notice in verse 6, as slaves of Christ. Notice in verse 7, as to the Lord. Notice in verse 8, you'll receive back from the Lord. Down in verse 9, that your master I mean, every one of these verses mention uh, the Lord Jesus. Jesus Christ should permeate our work, and he should permeate our entire lives. He's the key to our work life, but he's really the key to all of life. It seems to me nowadays when I meet some people who profess to be Christians or are thinking about becoming a believer that sometimes our attitude is, you know, I'm going to just kind of take Jesus and kind of just add him onto my life. I kind of need Jesus, need somebody to just kind of help me with the problems in my life. Look, Jesus is not just an add-on to life. He is life. Without Him, we don't have life. In 1 John, John says that he who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. Either have Christ and you have life, or you don't have Him and you don't have life. So if you don't have Christ this morning as your Savior, uh, you don't have life. You, you don't have what life is really all about. Jesus said that to know me is to have life, and to have life eternal. So if you've never trusted Christ as your Savior, that's what you need to do this morning. You need to believe in him, the one who died in your place on the cross, the one who rose from the dead. You need to trust him and take the one um, whom to know um, is life eternal, if you've never done that. Earlier in the book of Ephesians, Paul says this. For by grace you've been saved through faith, not of yourselves. It's the gift of God. It's not of works, lest anyone should boast. Come and receive God's free mercy this morning and receive life indeed. Well, Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for Jesus Christ who is our life. We thank you that he's the one that we work for, but we thank you that he's done that great work for us that we could never do for ourselves. He paid the price for our sins and rose from the dead. Lord, thank you for our precious Savior. I pray if there's anyone here this morning who's never met him and found in him life eternal, they might do it right now as they turn to you, trust in Jesus Christ as their Savior. Father, for every one of us here, I pray that you'd help us to do the exceptional and ordinary things in our daily lives. Father, help us to work for you to wake up every day and realize it's another opportunity to serve you. Oh, Father, help us through our lives and through our work to beautify the gospel and all we do to bring glory and honor to your great name for you're worthy. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.